Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Atomic Pod. I'm David Wilkinson. This is Vinay Fadnis. We are here to talk about AI. We've got three main topics this week. AI's impact on content generation, AI-based data risk, which we all know is a, a, a pressing issue, and AI's impact on healthcare, which I think everybody's excited about. Okay, so the first thing we're going to talk about this week is the uh, AI, OpenAI's new tool called Dolly 3, which has uh, integrated ChatGPT into its, um, into its prompt uh, entering system. So now it will autocomplete and, and um, help you kind of hone your prompting, as well as uh, it's also generating higher quality images that are more accurately reflective of prompts. It's um, which especially when it's dealing with like a large, a longer prompt, and it's, be it's better at handling content that has historically tripped up uh, some other image generating models like text or human hands, uh, things that things that these uh, models have typically struggled with. Uh, so, Vinay, tell just for a little bit of context, you, do you want to tell us about what is Dolly? Um, you know how how did Dolly two really shake things up, and and how is this better? For sure. So DAL-E is an image generation model by OpenAI. And the whole construct of having an image generation model is where you have text as input. And then it does some processing in between. We'll talk about that in detail. But then at the output, you have an image. So ideally, what happens is these systems are built by very large neural networks. And these neural networks are like very similar to a human brain. And what happens is when they are trained on millions of images, that is when they generate a mapping of what these images are, what do they represent. And it's more like a very abstract 10 dimensional mapping where every image represents something in the space. It's like a cat, it's a dog, it's a computer, it's a laptop, phone, factory, country, satellites, globes, anything. So, and then what it does is it then starts to reverse engineer this. So then once you enter a prompt, like something like, I want to have an image of a potato that is a king of a potato kingdom, then it starts <laughs> to generate something like this, which is pretty cool in itself because now you're moving away from reality because now suddenly what you say in text, it's similar to you hiring a painter or you hiring a graphic artist where you tell this guy to do something you give it a description you give him a task and this guy does something and you get it back so it's very similar to hiring uh, an actual digital content creator but again everything using software from start to end which is amazing and you know i think what's so striking to me is and maybe maybe this is i know i think dolly 2 was like this too is the level of like photorealism that it can do I mean, normally to 3D animate something like that is extremely labor intensive. You have to be really, really good at these programs. And yeah, you can hire some, you can probably outsource it or hire a you know, third party through something like Fiverr where you can hire engineers to do things like that pretty cheaply. This is almost eliminating that need entirely where uh, you can just automate the whole thing. You know, all of yeah, exactly. And what happens is this removes the time component in these aspects like... Traditionally, if you were 
on a task to hire someone and let this person do his or her job and get back with a proper presentable content this thing took days if not weeks for a very high quality output Absolutely. the same thing which is debatably dali does it even better within a few seconds so now this time component goes away and now suddenly with this improved efficiency you can now like experiment with 100 different images like run 100 different versions of dali and let a army of 100 people work for you so exactly that's we'll a new way iterate. of just doing things that's yeah it's amazing and i think i think what you mentioned there just having it iterate you know a lot of times and you just pick the best output that normally <laughs> would be expensive uh in terms of time and money uh to hire all these people to do this this work for you i think it's you know it kind of echoes to me what's happening in in hollywood right now with all of sag after and the writers and everybody's on strike and i think that you know it's clear the winds are changing that the that these tools are going to be used to automate uh a lot of tasks that have have historically been uh labor and 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 money and time intensive sweet so actually that leads us to the next topic in in the stream where we actually have some very prominent writers uh sue chatgpt uh, sue open ai over chatgpt and allegations of stolen content so let's shed some more light into exactly what this is so what has happened is when open ai was training chatgpt it essentially took content out of the open internet so this is like textual content textual content dumps books movie scripts news articles research papers anything that it could find uh, you know easily find hands on it was used to train chat gpt and that is how you get your answers through that universe of textual knowledge now what happens is somewhere uh, these writers have a claim that somewhere open ai or chat gpt has been also trained on content created by these authors and now if chat gpt is becoming a monetizable asset for open ai then somewhere the cut should be passed down so it's like a classic case of copyright violation or not like is ai a tool or not so it's again a detailed discussion so david what are your views on it do you think content that is trained or or an ai model that is trained on someone else's work but when you query the ai model the output that it gives is maybe based on that work but not exactly that work where does this fit in according to you it is dicey i think there's you know there's not a ton of legal precedent for something like this because it's not like you've had a you've hired a, a writer to write something in the style of john grisham and it you know it's pulling from whatever it you know whatever that person remembers of john grisham's book this is literally can go through the text of you know hundreds of books that have been put on the open internet and when it when it says when you tell it to write you something in the style of john grisham it will really closely emulate the writing style of that author what's difficult is like you said is the uh the usage of this you know what is considered i guess a intellectual property of of him right of uh every you open a book it's got copyright uh you know uh to whatever publishing house uh printed the book and and released it and and has has handled all of that uh you know i can understand why these authors are upset uh george martin another extremely successful artist uh, author uh, uh, who has 
you know, made it made an impact on on pop culture and media. Game of Thrones is one of the highest grossing and, and high, most expensive per shows ever produced at the time. I think um, the last season was like uh, the budget was was higher than any any show's production to date had been. And so there's a lot of money that these these authors are, are, are being paid to, for their content uh, by, you know, companies who want to make movies or shows based on their books. This is a little bit different. This open AI is making money based on their content, but, you know, didn't really, it's kind of, it's kind of murky uh, whether their permission was sought, whether they were offered any sort of royalties on it. And I think it's going to be a, I think it's going to be a fight. I don't think that open AI is going to want to pay them money for their, uh, their content, because once they do that, where does it stop? Every every artist, you know, on the internet is going to come knocking down their door for a check. But again, see, there is a different side to this debate, right? Like, if you have a human, and so for a second, let's take out AI, let's take out OpenAI, let's take out ChatGPT, let's take out the technology aspect out of it. I am a human. I read the uh, content written by George R. R. Martin, and like, of course, the book series is fabulous. Based on this book series, if I, uh, you know, if I uh, appear in front of a news channel or if I create a podcast like this or a YouTube channel, whatever, and if I quote examples from that book, that is not necessarily infringing on someone's content or even infringing on someone's copyright for that matter. I agree. So that's where as a human, if this thing is allowed, why is a machine not allowed to do the same thing? Now, again... As a human, even I'm going to make money out of uh, these assets, these graphic assets that I'm generating by quoting examples built by others. But end of the day, you know, this is where it's a very thin line, which is almost hard to enforce. And it's very easy to cross right. because there are different rules that you could do as an individual. There are different rules that an AI can do. So it all goes back to the discussion of what are the basic rights, what is the basic online identity of every AI. So, all right, that is a very good segue on our next topic, which is, uh, this is a cybersecurity company called Fairly AI. And they want to help corporates or companies better understand their AI risk. So what are your thoughts? Maybe... Uh, you know, expand more on what type of AI risks are, do you think are actually relevant for companies? Of course, there is no standard content outline for this. So I would love to hear your opinion on this. So this kind of reminds me of um, when there were, uh, I think it was Bard that was, um, people were getting concerned because they would, they would ask it for prompts. They would, they would ask it prompts that, um, and it would generate responses that, seem to be based on things that were like company IP that it, it shouldn't have really had access to in the training. And it, it, and I think the, the way that I can't remember the way the article uh, described it, but uh, there's a different article uh, previously that, that basically said like the only way that it, it could have known these things are if it had been fed like company data. And so there were, there were some concerns that were growing on it. I think that that's kind of like what, part of, of what they're driving at here. There's obviously there's, you know, you think about what are the risks for AI? And so everybody imagines like an army of robots, like destroying humanity. But I think what we're talking about here is more like the, the uh, like data, data risks. Uh, think about like patient, patient healthcare confidentiality, financial data, 
um, you know, of companies and individuals. Uh, these are things that there has been a large push to, uh, to regulate. And so how do you regulate something like that, like this, that's never been done before. So there's all these, you know, as I, I think, uh, the, one of their, uh, the, it, I'll probably mispronounce his name, but David Van uh, Van Bruin, I believe, is the fairly CEO. He's saying, uh, was quoted as saying, "Talks of AI regulation have accelerated at an unprecedented pace. Pace, excuse me, and AI safety is a concern to just about everyone. The problem is that AI projects can go on forever without a clear path to production because no one person can say for sure that the AI is safe and compliant enough to go to production. So, I think what their mission is is kind of to standardize." And benchmark and and kind of create some some rigor to the, a framework that can be you know kind of applied across the board and it's a great it's, i think something like this is, is definitely needed you think about all the ai see i think we talked last episode about how there were all these ai ceos who were being called into to speak with congress about how they would regulate and i think one of the things to come out of those discussions is that we really need kind of a framework and you know, and everybody can agree that we need a framework, but as, in terms of like what that actually looks like, I think it's still pretty nebulous. So I like I like to see something like this, um, you know, came out of the Accenture FinTech Innovation Lab, uh, went through Techstars. It's just, you know, there's there's obviously uh, people are recognizing that something like this is needed. And I'm, I think this is super positive. So so for, for me, this is fizz. All right. And uh, I mean, maybe adding on to what you said of course regulation around generative ai is the most important aspect right now of course the reason why we are talking about generative ai is because that has come into the mainstream like now you can actually interact with a generative ai model but essentially what's going to happen is you're going to come to some sort of standardization for instance if you uh, go out to a jewelry shop and if you buy any gold ornament this thing has a hallmark on it. Like it has stamped by a hallmark, which is actually a licensed government body. So what happens is that hallmark gives this ornament some credibility so that, okay, it is of a certain purity. It is of a certain value. Based on this value, it, it is going to have a guaranteed resale price. So you, the main part that you are getting a, a actual genuine thing that was promised is always done through regulation. So over time, regulation has always increased, uh, always resulted in a net gain for the society. So on this line, there is actually a new thought that every generative AI model, so whatever it generates, be it uh, an image generation model, be it a text generation model, at the end of this generation, like if it's an image generation model, at the bottom right, like at the very last pixel, which is not even seen by a human, there should be a signature which says that this is generated by an AI model of these these parameters and of this company and the ownership is of such a structure. So there is a very good push towards actually bringing this hallmark into a digital space. And interestingly, I think this is actually where NFTs can come in. This is actually where tokenizable content can come in. But of course, that's up to the future to decide. So Absolutely. for me, this is a very big fizz uh, because honestly, I think we cannot underestimate the importance of regulation. Like just think for a second, if there was no trust in the banking system, the whole financial world would have been way different right now. Right. 
the whole reason why there is trust in the banking system there is trust in the equity markets there is trust in the money market is because there is a government body or there is a strong enough body regulating these assets right so all right that it. actually uh, let's uh, let's do a segue let's get out of uh, generative ai regulation for now and let's go to a few interesting news articles so actually amazon is bringing generative ai to fire tv along with a few new devices on a general note where is fire tv i i've heard that there was a lot of fuzz about the fire os fire phone fire tv fire tab i think they also had a fire laptop of something some sort okay. but where are these fire devices and your general opinion on what would it take to be the next android or ios you know like what is the secret sauce behind these guys i think that's what they want right that's they they're trying to uh compete with like the android os but uh, like we were saying earlier doesn't really uh doesn't really uh work so well with uh, cross compatibility and so i think which i which is a you know a marketing tactic in itself um I, amazon is is a name brand uh you know i think that they have totally dominated the shipping and distribution market not you know expanding just from being an online bookseller to now delivering everything under the sun in record time it's uh, you know so convenient and so they're really trying to bring that into their own kind of digital ecosystem that they control the devices the hardware as well and that means that and that means uh for the in, in this case also having a native operating system that is is unique to the uh to the fire ecosystem um for me i have used uh i've used a fire stick for the tv i've uh i've not seen an actual fire tv uh itself but um you know i think that they're they they would like to kind of take a stab at Roku is kind of their biggest uh, biggest competitor. The Roku also having kind of its own um, I think it's is on Android, but I think their own kind of native uh, OS. So I have to fact check me on that. But um, you know, I the Fire tablet to me was a little you know was not my favorite uh, tablet that I've ever used. Coming, I think that to try to you know compete with like apple and and uh the ipad is like a pretty big task that apple obviously is there making their own silicon those chips are phenomenally made and are totally changing you know the whole ecosystem so i think i think for me it's a little bit fuzzy i see where they're going with it i would love you know i would love to see it continue to improve and i and i hope that it does but i think they definitely have to work it out for them absolutely adding on I I personally uh, I was using a Fire TV stick for quite some time then after some time the remote was not working and there was actually no way I could get a replacement remote so I had to throw the whole thing away and <laughs> just move on to like Chromecast yeah so uh, see of course for me there is a broader level discussion here where I would love to touch this topic of what actually makes uh, different platforms different operating systems successful and i think there are two main factors here so the first one is see you have to have a competitive edge in uh, either innovation or usability so if you look at the early days of android then these guys had a lot of features very fast so the pace of innovation in the android world was very high as compared to the ios world of course i'm stepping into a very heated debate of android versus ios but regardless 
if you look at the iOS space, they were of course late for a few features in the market, but the features were so well integrated in the full ecosystem that honestly it didn't really matter. Right. Uh, of course, your life was the same before these features. Your life is now the same after these features. Like, of course, headphone jack is a very good example. After okay. headphone jacks, the world moved to AirPods, and honestly, for a lot of times, Bluetooth headphones are convenient. So, I mean. In general, you have to have at least one competitive advantage where either you are fast to the market or you are the best in the market in terms of usability. So there is a first mover advantage. There is also a first mover disadvantage. Where So that is where the Android and iOS ecosystems are always fighting. And I love to see new features being launched on either side and then something being ported over here something being ported over there like there are a lot of trends which both of the platforms have taken from each other but at the same time if you look at it this is always beneficial for the end consumer because somewhere even apple is forced to innovate and launch new features and at the end of the day have everything well integrated in the ecosystem at the same time even android is pushed to you know always keep on releasing new features where it's always a value for money product where you end up buying better phones, better flagship phones. These things have better chips, better cameras, better hardware, better integrations, all of that. So I think in good. this Fire OS, uh, like the whole Fire ecosystem somewhere uh, tried to find a place in between both of these platforms where they were not as innovative as Android, but again, they were pretty well connected in the Android ecosystem. But again, I think uh, the market is not... Uh, segmented enough for that to happen and I think the phone market is already saturated to a certain level where almost okay. everyone who is buying their phone is not buying their very first smartphone they have already okay. gone through a series of smartphones and now they're just looking for upgrading so all right yeah, on the note of big tech and uh, companies doing interesting things Google's Bard chatbot which is a competitor to ChatGPT can now tap into your Google Apps, double check answers and more. So let me elaborate on exactly what is happening here. So Google Bard is something which is just like ChatGPT where you can type in a query and get a detailed response out. Now, traditionally what has happened is these language models are expressive, but they are not factual. So what I mean is these chat, uh, these chat models, these large language models can generate textual content but they cannot comment anything on the accuracy of this generated content. So if you see a simple de uh, demo where you just go to Google Bard and you type in a query uh, and then once you get a result for this query, you have a button where you can cross check the results on Google. So this is very interesting because now using the power of Google, using the their dominance in the search industry, in the search market, this is like a game changer for large language models because now you have creativity where you can generate textual outputs along with this you also have high accuracy because then this information can be vetted against google's own page ranking database so that is one aspect of this the second aspect is now bard can do much more it's not like a very creative but useless poetic engine it can now check flights for you it can now uh, get into google maps it can give you directions 
then for a corporate if you are into google business then you can actually ask this uh, platform specific questions about certain documents that you have in your database like okay this is my accounting spreadsheet for this year tell me what is my bottom line tell me what is my top line tell me my profit percentage tell me my projections blah 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 and i think so, that's what's so exciting for business you know this is this is this could and this is at, in the middle of their as they're uh, in court for uh for a uh, monopoly lawsuit you know right there this is this is actively being uh discussed right now in kind of the highest levels of government whether whether they're running a, a monopoly they are and we love it and it's the best, it's the best and so for me this is this is exciting because it's it's just kind of really solidifying google's kind of dominance in in the space and how this can really uh impact workflows for for businesses exactly and the whole point is when you give a generative ai model the ability to verify what it is actually saying uh, for instance i'll just uh, go through a quick demo so what i did is i just opened up bard and i asked bard a very simple question what are the types of bananas in the world so i got i got a certain answer and now based on this answer i have this option where i can double check this response so if i click here then it is going to open google it is going to search for a few results and then it is going to tell me what is actually genuine what is wrong what is correct so if you look at it it has actually highlighted stuff that is fact checked through wikipedia then this is through miamifruit.org this is through healthline this is through wikipedia this is through britannica again so just having this layer on top of it gives you a big confidence because now i know of course there are uh, you know from this list of uh, five types of bananas there are four types of bananas for sure again regarding buro bananas i'm not sure because there is no uh, you know there is no other reference to this thing at least on google this might be the truth this might not be but still with this i am getting a very good idea about how generative ai is performing and what information to trust and what information to take with a grain of salt right which is uh, i think one stark kind of uh, thing that is lacking to me uh, in a lot of large language models that you use and you know i think it's kind of terrifying to think like wait so so they don't they don't they're not already doing this right it uh, it makes you think about you know double checking your output before you use it for your you know your term paper or your what whatever your app or in business or whatever your application uh of the technology is you know we really need to make sure that we double check the accuracy especially while these tools are still being developed of course because see it's very important for our listeners to actually understand how these large language models are trained so for example in the full training corpus so the training corpus is nothing but you know like uh, millions of words one after the other and it's like a series of words where the model tries to understand this is how sentences are formed this is the next sentence after this like do a full language understanding kind of thing but what happens is if you take this training data set and if you just find all sentences where bananas are yellow in color and if you change that to say something like bananas are black in uh, bananas are pink in color which is naturally impossible but suddenly uh, if you ask an ai model okay what colors are bananas then it would say pink with a very high accuracy 
because that is what this AI model has seen. Right. So on this front, we actually need to be very careful about what we feed our AI systems with, because then that is going to act as foundational truth for the following iterations. And then what happens is if this AI is retrained over and over again using the same data, using responses on the same data, using queries on the same data, over time, this becomes an almost impossible bias to remove from the model. Absolutely. So yes. I think this is a very good move in the right direction. And Google has been uh, lagging behind, honestly, in the large language model arms race because if I look at Lambda, if I look at their early stage research, Google was ready to launch a chat GPT like version almost four years back, which they held on to it for some reason. Mm -hmm. But now that they are back in the arms race with full swing, with full momentum, I think Google has a biggest competitive edge here to actually bundle generative AI with their other services and actually create a very solid product. I couldn't agree more. And I, I think that that's also a really good, you know, and we'll, we'll touch again on the, on the kind of training, uh, kind of shortcomings with training data uh, when we get to the paper that we're going to discuss in a minute. But I think we've got one other article we want to, we want to touch on first. Sure. So of course we have two more articles. So the first oh, one is, uh, so multi AI collaboration helps reasoning and factual accuracy in large language models. So again, let me shed some light on what this is in, in, in its fundamental nature. So basically multi AI is basically when you have different language models working with each other and giving you one output. So it's like, if you want to plan a trip to a new country, if you are, let's say you're a, uh, you're a small company and you want to expand overseas and you want to create a plan for it. Now, in general, the process would be you approach a set of language models in this case, and you ask the first language model, which is an expert on global economics. Like the first question you ask is, which is the best country to set up an off offshore shop, which is the best country to set up uh, uh, a business abroad mm -hmm. then it gives you a list of like 20 countries which are based on you know which are geopolitically well connected with where you stay with where your current base is all of that then what happens is you move on to the second gpt model like you move on to the second language model where you take the previous data you feed it into this model and you ask a follow-up question okay now you are an expert in finance uh, you ask the model that you, uh, that the model is an expert in finance now, looking at these 10 countries, give me a good example on where can I go in these 10 countries. So then it runs all of your financials. It it has a good idea about where you stand. Again, it's connected to your Google Sheets, blah, 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 all of that. But using all of this, it gives you, it, it boils down the list from 10 to three different countries. Like these are the three countries where you can afford going to. Then what happens is you pass all of that to a third AI, which is like an expert in human resource, in offshore structuring, stuff like that. This AI further helps you uh, boil down all of that into one country. So essentially, the whole point is, it's like having a room of experts working for you. And generally what happens is, if you try to teach one person 100 different things, generally what happens is the skill is spread too thin, where it's like it it has a wide breadth, but it has very low depth. So on that line, uh, I honestly think that this is a big deal, but this is a big, big, big uh, fizz 
where you have different AI models trying to work together. Of course, technically, as being a developer, I can understand that this is a nightmare to actually sync the text output of every model and daisy chain all of that together to get a final output. But regardless, conceptually, this is a fabulous idea. What is your opinion, David? Like, where do you see this being used in the real world? I mean, I couldn't agree more. It's it's like hiring a team of experts and then they can iterate their arguments. So they're they're debating with each other uh, based on, you know, uh, this model is like maybe, like you said, like an, an economics or a, or a geopolitical expert, but the other is a financial accounting expert. And so the ability to create this kind of room of experts that are that is debating with each other and then iterate and iterate and iterate and improve and improve the output gives you higher, uh, a much higher degree of certainty of the, uh, you've really arrived at the best conclusions that are available with, with the technology you're using. And this is a massive step forward. I think that it's going to be, you know, I, I, I want to see more and more of this. It's also, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, a, an opportunity for cross collaboration between these language model companies, which, you know, I don't know how 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 excited they were about this and how involved they were in the putting together of the study, but I'm happy to see it because I think that using all these tools and playing to their different strengths and, and having them interact with each other to make all the technology better is, is the best thing for the end user. And so this is just only going to make things better. It's only going to increase the, like you said, the real world application or applicability of the technology. And that's what we want. We want to be able to incorporate this into our businesses so that we can run lean super teams who are AI enabled, who are AI whisperers or whatever. So you can really uh, do a lot with a little. And that's that's the dream. Of course, but see, again, adding on something here, of course, I don't want to overstep the time for this topic. But generally, while we are looking at the silver lining in this topic, there is, of course, a very big challenge which we need to overcome. And that is, for example, if any AI model, so, you know, Touching back to something which I talked about previously, where if you change the training database of an AI model, it is very easy to implement some bias into it. So, for example, if the first model gives you incorrect answers about countries that, you know, you would be comfortable going to, setting up a business into, if the financial model takes this and then works upon this, then again, there can be something different where you have a bias being carried forward and maybe what might happen is the financial model might build up on this bias and increase it. So eventually this might lead to something totally different, like the typical game of Chinese whispers, where you talk something and while it goes around in a full circle, it's a, it's a totally different thing. The telephone so, game is sometimes called. Yeah. So on that front, I think uh, for me, this is, again, as I said, a big uh, fuzz, uh, big fuzz. But on that front, I think it still has a large, a big opportunity to have a multimodal, a multi-AI collaboration at the same time being cautious that actual bias might come into this because then you are starting to base important decisions on the output of multiple AI models. So right. for our listeners, just keep this as a backup plan for now until there is something which checks the accuracy at every stage, something which Google has done, kudos to Google. 
So it's like AI right. groupthink. It's like AI groupthink. Exactly. Like you get the room. It's like how many idiots in a room does it take to <laughs> spiral things out of control <laughs> because they all start agreeing with each other and then become more excited. It's just solidifying bias. It's 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 very interesting to see. And there cannot uh, be a better example to this than big tech, where you have teams upon teams trying to build seemingly insignificant features, which may or may not even affect you. So, <laughs> I mean. Let's see where this goes. Agreed. All right. So the next one is uh, we have a pose mapping technique. Uh, so this uses an open source model called as PoseNet. And PoseNet was developed a couple of years back where it helps you track your joints. It helps you track your movements through a camera feed. Now, what has happened is uh, a few companies have used this PoseNet data and ran it through a few high speed cameras. So now based on the micro vibrations while you're walking, they can do certain medical diagnosis with a certain accuracy for you. Like for example, you could be having uh, mild blood sugar levels, you could be having a fluctuating BP, you could be, as this article is saying, you could be having cerebral palsy, where certain difference in movement is created while you do seemingly routine actions like walking, picking things up, just moving around, running, jumping. And these things are ca captured by these cameras. So generally, this opens up a whole new world of uh, different diagnoses, different uh, analysis patterns of human behavior. And again, it raises a very big privacy concern. So David, what's your stand on this? You know, the privacy concern is real, uh, but I think that this is, it's exciting, you know, for all of the fervor around AI to see uh, real world applications of this to solve like challenging health problems. And so I think, you know, I love, I love to see uh, advancements in the field of AI and health. Uh, but also, yeah, the, the uh, you know, the actual animation, yeah, that's, it's just, it's so cool. And uh, I think, I think that uh, this is, uh, you know, is positive. So they, they said that they tested it, uh, tested the method on videos of more than a thousand children with cerebral palsy, but, uh, and it, was uh, assigned a clinical score that matched with over 70% accuracy what the clinician had previously determined in an in-person visit. So you're saving money on, um, you know, uh, doctor visits, which can be also, if you have a child with cerebral palsy, might be a challenge uh, just to even get into a clinic. Um, I think there's a lot of positives, you know, while we, we do have to be mindful of the, the data risks and, and uh, patient confidentiality risks that, that, that this presents. But I think overall, uh, I, I would call this a, a net gain and positive. It's, I think I'd love to see kind of more things like this where we are applying the technology to help people's quality of life. I can't agree more. So for me, of course, this changes the way we do medical diagnosis. Like, of course, primary healthcare is delivered in a completely different way. But all said and done, I'm still a bit, a little bit concerned about AI models having a certain accuracy level trained on a certain population data set. Like, of course, I don't know the balance of skin color in this model, oh, the balance sure. of different backgrounds, the balance of different uh, recording conditions. We don't know how that plays in. Mm. So all in all, you never know where these things are headed, where are there some biases in these models? Are there some preset conditions in these models? Are there some data patterns that, that these models have learned, which may not be the case? So all said, everything coming together, I think 
we should still be a little bit concerned and a little bit alert about what diagnoses we are getting from an AI model. Absolutely. Because end of the day, that is a difference between life and death in certain scenarios. 100%. Couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it is it, it is one of those things that this is, we have to remember, this is still early days. So this is this is work that needs to be done. And we have to realize that we have to take this with a grain of salt because it's so hard to standardize uh, things at, at, at this early point. But it will only only continue to improve. Hopefully, that we're you know doing a better job of vetting the training debts, uh, data sets for for bias for things like you know are you know are the are, are is there like a, a even distribution of um, ethnicities and skin colors and and back, uh, ethnic backgrounds and and all you know, how that factors into, into uh, genetic health and all this stuff. Like you have to really like, you know, sip. there's a lot of weeds that you have to kind of sift through. Uh, but I, I think overall step in the right direction, uh, you know, and, and exciting for uh, when you think like of the extrapolations of this, where it can, it can really help people's quality of life overall. Yeah. Cool. So, Moving on to the next segment, we have papers with us. So in papers with us, we are talking about, uh, we do the hard work of going through research papers, like reading the full thing, going through the boring textual content and trying to summarize something and get this thing out for our listeners where they now have a detailed understanding of how this thing works without actually going through the full research paper. So the topic for today is uh, like GPT, uh, like chat GPT, a general uh, generative pre-trained transformer can solve mathematical problems without a calculator. Now, let me shed some light on why this is important. Let me elaborate the title first and then let's uh, go to our opinions. So the to begin with, generally, as I said, uh, let's take the same examples of training for the colors of bananas where every banana is pink is what we have replaced in the training data set. Now the model has no, now the AI has no problem in giving you the same answer because that is what it has been taught. Now, if you take it a step back, if you take it into the realm of mathematics, in the realm of physics, like uh, if I generate a very big physics training data set and if I tell this guy gravity acts upwards or circular motion is acts in a rectangle whatever and if this happens over and over again then eventually this ai model is going to think that the laws of physics are working in a certain way and then when you ask this ai to solve a certain problems then it's going to be very difficult for the ai to even come to any sort of conclusion so similarly just extend the same thought in the domain of mathematics where you have basic algebraic notation you have basic geometrical rules and if you move away from these rules for a second and essentially the AI is just like a poet or is just like a creative language generation asset. Now, long story short, the AI doesn't really care what the rules of mathematics are. <laughs> so this paper aims to create new GPT models where it teaches the GPT models uh, various rules of math and then evaluates it on a certain data set of algebraic problems like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, exponentiation, mixing operations, different things. And then it has seen the results. So again, David, your views on this? 
so and they're calling this uh, their their model math GLM. And like you said, there's different uh, size trading sets that, uh, that that you can choose from they, that we've gone through the GitHub and, and looked at, at the um, a few of the examples. What I think stood out to, to me is the comparability of like GPT fours uh, accuracy with uh, with Math GLM. The larger models were actually I think outperforming by a, a pretty a pretty solid amount. Um, you've got and also, also another thing that I didn't realize was that if you go over like for multiplication of over eight digits, uh, like GPT is like not able to do that right now. The GPT four, I think, was was really uh, really struggling with that. But this GLM with with says basically with a two billion parameter language model can accurately perform multi digit arithmetic with almost one hundred percent accuracy without data leakage, significantly surpassing GPT four whose multi digit multiplication accuracy is only 4.3%. 4.3% accuracy is, I think, a shocking number, uh, even, even you know, at this early stage in, in the process. I just I think we, we, you know, our tendency is to be excited about the tech and, and to just, and to kind of take it at face value. This is another example of where we really need to take the output from these large language models with a grain of salt because they are still being worked on. Um, kind of the fundamentals of the, of the, project. It was, uh, I think, Tsinghua University, and uh, I believe that's a Chinese uh, university. And it's, uh, it's based in PyTorch, which is a fantastic machine learning framework. Um, so I think that's exciting. Um, uh, and I think it's also been brought under, which PyTorch is under like Linux Foundation. So everything, obviously, that's like, uh, you know, should in indicate uh, kind of the reliability of, of the underlying framework of the model that they're building. Uh, like like we said, the its ability to outperform not not only on like arithmetic problems, but also on word problems, and I guess uh, specifically Chinese word problems are, are extremely hard for these uh, for these uh, large language models to to uh, complete with accuracy. So I think this is like another really important step in the right direction as we as we talk about using tools like the large language models in the business context you have to rely that the math is going to be correct and uh, it has to be correct with more than 4.3% accuracy. That's just, that's just It has to be 100. There is honestly right. no, like, <laughs> it is a deterministic logic-based system. There has to be no room for error. Agreed. So it's gotta if, be. You, if you think about it, see how these things work is that they have built specific tokens for integers, for decimals, fractions, percentage, negative numbers, like, what these guys have done is that if you look at any complex mathematical operation, it is always done in, divided into a few set of sub operations like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division and exponents. So if you look at this, if you can find a way to generalize, uh, create a generalized version of these language models in a, uh, in a general digit to a string representation, as a developer, I'm I'm geeking out a little bit here. So if you try to change the representation from an integer to a string, that is when you start to create these mappings where now the model understands, okay, this is a number. I have to process this thing like a number. It's not a word which can be used creative, creatively with other words. Right. And this is an interesting route because then the model knows that sometimes it has to work on different problems. It has to 
arrive at step by step solutions because this is also very important in math like any math problems is a sequential set of operations so again having and respecting the sequence is also very important to get to the right answer so just as an example this was the training data set that was given to the model like this is of course a chinese data set of different math problems just like these like simple ar basic arithmetic math problems it also has some complicated math problems it also has some basic level language understanding type problems like uh, simple word problems i have 10 bananas i gave you four bananas how many bananas do i have right. so on that front what they did is they recreated the full initial training data set with these language tokens embedded into it and then they trained a typically a language model expert on these newly created uh, data sets and then let's look at the accuracy because this is actually a staggering difference so if you look at accuracy then uh, when you get into various type of integers various type of numbers so see if you look at uh, again uh, simple things like chat gpt it works only 90% of the times for a percentage based addition if you look at chat gpt even gpt4 it works only 52 times for a fractional subtraction operation like how much is 3/4 minus half that's pretty scary <laughs> that's pretty scary because something which is at such an underlying level of the modern uh, digital era is something that is so bugridden and something that is so low on an accuracy standpoint then if you look at multiplication with decimals they have zero accuracy that's crazy and even with this math glm which has 2 billion parameters which is again a very big thing they still were able to achieve 33% accuracy right so this is a difficult thing it's like you teach a linguist to perform math operations without giving the person any rules about how math works <laughs> like what is 10 minus 3 this guy can only look at the linguistic part of it right so that becomes very difficult especially when you uh, look at bard performing division of fractions 1% is honestly crazy yeah and if you look at it any number can be represented as a fraction so over time this accuracy is going to be bonkers yeah so that is where math glm has a very good way of moving forward of solving basic math problems basic arithmetic problems uh, and i wish the team good luck and hope that they are able to achieve higher and higher accuracies because end of the day we have to reach to a point where math operations are 99.100 times 9 accuracy level compared to you know 100% of classical computers so somewhere we have to reach that very high level of accuracy because right now what people need to understand is it's like asking a poet to do your math homework okay exactly you know <laughs> it's probably, yeah maybe maybe 3% 5% of the time they might they might guess the right answer based on you know quote based on words that they've heard somebody somebody tell them before but they they don't actually understand the actual uh mathematical framework and so that's what we really need to uh strive to improve on and to have integrated in our large language models for them to be viable in 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 terms of the business use cases i think that's that's really huge i what i'd be interested to know is um like 
where Google is able to, where Bard is able to uh, to check. I'm wondering, you know, if the Sheets logic, like if it has enough of, uh, like there, I guess it's relying on just checking a field um, that's already been kind of uh, computed through a computational engine. I would kind of be interested to to hear uh, or to, to to see kind of what the interplay between that kind of feature and something like this could be. You know, maybe it's uh, again kind of back to that MIT study where you've got multiple um, multiple models that are kind of uh, able to to cross examine and cross debate each other um, to increase accuracy. Hopefully, and you know, hopefully without uh, you know inter solidifying the uh, the bias. I think. You know, I think it's funny. I've seen a lot of um, like Reddit posts where people are trying to argue with the LLM and say, no, two plus two equals five. It says, no, two plus two equals four. It said, no, two plus two equals five. It says, okay, fine. And it's like, <laughs> you know, if you if you guys keep doing this, it's going to make it it's going to make exactly. it not viable to, to be used in real world applications. So please, anybody who thinks that's funny, please stop. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> uh, exactly. Like, see, you have a good example here where there are different types of errors that uh, this thing came up with. Like, if you look at the first one, this is, of course, uh, if someone from our listeners can translate this, this would be cool. But in general, what we can understand is comparing with the ground truth, like the answer of, um, you know, 96, the AI came with an answer of 144. It's just uh, horrible. Now, <laughs> if you look at this, uh, this is a typical question misunderstood error where uh, it did not come up with the correct set of calculations. Like if you look at here, these are the correct set of calculations which led to an answer of 96. It completely messed up the calculations. It completely messed up the priority of different uh, operations and it messed up the output. So then you have calculation error where it got the question correct, where it was still 215 plus in bracket 56 minus 65. It was still the same thing, but then it simply did the calculation wrong. Now, this is also a little bit interesting where you have potentially a neural network, which is running on a set of calculations done millions of times every second, which are pitch perfect. On these calculations, you have something that is running with calculation error. So this is a very, very good example of how certainty leads into uncertainty. Like if you have looked at those typical water faucets where it's a typical laminar flow and suddenly there is a lot of noise in between and the water starts uh, you know, moving in a very non-laminar disturbed way. So it's the same thing where uh, also a different example where if you have seen you know, smoke coming out of uh, any object, then it's very smooth at the start and suddenly then it shimmers away. So these are like classical examples where uh, you have certainty at the start, but what eventually happens on these certain objects leads to a lot of uncertainty. Then honestly, here we have knowledge error and here it's simple common sense error, yeah, <laughs> which is <laughs> very, very funny because now you're talking about common sense for an AI, which in itself is an achievement. We have reached, humanity has reached such a stage where now we are trying to define common sense for AI. <laughs> that is crazy. It is crazy. And, and you know, it's one of those things that we have to kind of come up with a framework so that these things can be standardized and can be can be improved upon. Uh, one other thing that I, I think is interesting is, you know, just in the title of the paper, without a calculator, it's like, you know, I understand that we want these LLMs to just be able to do everything 
based on on text generation but you know maybe integrating with like a wolfram alpha or some kind of a you know really good calculator tool that you can kind of weave yeah. in and and i'm sure that there, there's a lot of that which i i realize would be a massive engineering undertaking there's like you know how do you there's a lot of uh intricate abstraction that would have to occur in order for something like that to be really well integrated and for it to be able to recognize like you say here we're going going back and forth okay okay we've we're taking this integer and now we're going to call it a string and we're going to tokenize it we're going to, we're going to manipulate it differently than we would just within like the framework of a normal calculator program uh <laughs> i just I, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the answer. Maybe the answer isn't to try to do it without the calculator, but it's to see how we can use these tools together or integrate them in a way that makes sense and, and uh, increases the overall accuracy of the, of, the, of the model. All right. So with that, we conclude the third episode of the Atomic Pod. Thank you so much, guys, for taking out the time. We really appreciate you spending almost like 55 minutes now. So 55 minutes with us talking about, blabbering about stuff. We hope this resulted in a net information gain for you. We hope this helped you clear your perspectives on large language models, on generative AI, on where the world is regarding AI stuff. And in general, thank you so much for taking out the time. Stay safe and... Wait for us in the next episode. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.